Well, good morning. My name is Malcolm Duncan. If you're joining us online for the first time or you are here for the first time, I have the privilege of leading the church here at uh, Dundonald, and I am uh, really honored that you've come on a summer morning to hear God's word and to meet with God's people. Thank you for taking the time to do that. I'm very grateful. And if you're watching online and you're part of the family somewhere on holiday, we're not jealous. (laughs) Have a lovely holiday. Enjoy the rest. Enjoy being with your family. And if you're joining us online as guests, thank you so much. I know there are a lot of other things that you could be doing. We're going to be exploring the Sermon on the Mount, so you'll want to find Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in your Bibles, and uh, we're going to read from them in a moment or two. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. When Gandhi met the Viceroy of All India, Lord Irwin, and was asked how he could see a way of resolving the issues between the empire and India. This is how the leader of India replied. When your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only of our countries, but those of the whole world. Gandhi was not a believer, didn't trust in Jesus Christ. Many aspects of his life uh, as history unfolds are open to deep scrutiny and cause great concern. But when he was a young man in South Africa studying law, somebody, uh, another young man who was a British Christian, tried to win him to Christ. And uh, Gandhi said, I can't follow Christianity. And they said, the young man said to him, why? He said, because you Christians do not take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. If you were to live this out, the world would be a different place. And he said something that I have used often in preaching, but perhaps very rarely here to that young uh, British Christian. He said, I cannot hear what you are saying for the noise of who you are. As we embark on the summer months, Pastor Pep and Pastor Davy and the leadership team and I have been thinking and praying about what we can bring across these months to encourage you and to continue to harness the momentum and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our church as he moves. So over the course of the next nine Sunday mornings, I would like to walk through with you the Sermon on the Mount. It is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. But what is it? Have you ever heard anybody preach all the way through it? Do you see it as a whole or do you see it as parts? Is it a collection of sayings? It doesn't really matter whether it's a collection or it's one sermon. I happen to believe it's one sermon. But in it we hear the voice of Jesus spoken to his disciples, encouraging them to follow him, telling them how to live, showing them ways and principles and key things that if they grasp, could change not only their lives and their families' lives, but the life of first, temp- first century um, Israel, and second temple Judaism, the time that Jesus lived in. Christians have struggled with it for 2,000 years. For some, it's an idealized way of approaching changing the world. They've taken it as a political manifesto, as a social manifesto, and it is that, but it's more than that. Because on our own, we can't live it, we can't do it, we don't have the strength and the grace. 
I am a great believer in the church being involved in the community. I led a charity globally that did it for years. I want us to be at the heart of this community. Leading change and speaking up for the voiceless and being uh, men and women who love the lost and the broken and open our doors in our homes and in our church building to all that God wants to do amongst this community because they will never believe something if they don't see it or hear it. But we are not simply a social work service. We are a church. And at the center of who we are is the beating heart of the gospel. That men and women can be given a new chance and a new life and a new spirit and a new breath and a new hope through God Almighty. I believe in political activism. That we should be speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves. That we should be on the front line of defending the defenseless. Challenging bad legislation, challenging those things that will make people feel and suffer simply because they're poor or they're a different color or they're disabled. Being the men and women who say, we have a place in public life in Northern Ireland. We have a place in public life in the Republic of Ireland. We have a place in the public square in Europe. This weekend has seen yet another conversation around Brexit and yet another one that begins to break within 48 hours of it being issued. Over the next 10 years, 300 miles of land is going to be the political center of the world. And it's less than an hour's drive from here. The world will be watching what happens on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. It'll become a touch point for trade. It'll become a touch point for immigration. It'll be a touch point for asylum seekers. It will be a touch point for human trafficking. It will be a touch point for political discourse. Every country in the world is going to be watching this nation and the nation of the Republic of Ireland for the next 10 or 15 years. And you and I get the chance to be part of the church that is alive and living and serving during that time. Excited? Some of you aren't so sure. Some of you live closer to that border and it's had connotations for different reasons over the years. But for the next 10 or 15 years, it's going to be a center of the world's attention. How could we as Christians be Christian in our response to those discussions? But I'm not just a political activist. We are Christians. We're called to live out of a different center, to have a different heart, to do something that is different. The Sermon on the Mount sets out the principles by which we can see ourselves, our communities, and the world transformed. But it doesn't start from the outside and works in. It starts from the inside and works out. It starts with the spiritual state of human beings. It starts with our relationship with God. It starts with who we are when we stand naked before Almighty God. Some people have found the Sermon on the Mount so challenging that they're afraid of approaching it because they know they will sound like a hypocrite. In it, we see and hear a radical, transforming, confrontational Jesus. A Jesus who won't put up with double standards, who won't allow hypocrisy, who challenges those who follow him to live right. Yet at the same time, we see a Jesus who champions purity, stands up for righteousness, takes the side of the underdog, and is willing to be unpopular in order to be faithful. We are confronted with teaching that slices us to the center of our existence. No wonder in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 we read that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. And that it divides us. It cuts into the very heart of who we are. If you read with me over the next nine weeks the Sermon on the Mount and you do not recognize your weakness and your feelings. 
than I have failed in my responsibilities as a preacher. But the Sermon on the Mount doesn't leave us in weakness. It leaves us in hope. It doesn't lead us to despair. It leads us to possibility. I have been wrestling with this passage for 25 years. It's probably the passage in Scripture that I have preached on more than I've preached on anything else. And yet I've never preached the same sermon twice in any of my ministry. I've read it and asked myself, what are the implications of this teaching for my life? How does it impact my approach to life, to money, to things, to other people, to my own spirituality? How do I relate to this Jesus that challenges me to go further and higher and live differently? It is the greatest challenge to comfortable Christian living. It gets under your skin. In it we hear Jesus at his rawest. We see him presented as a Messiah and as a Savior and as a holy man and as a rabbi and as a challenger. But far more than anything else, in it we see him as the new Moses. Matthew presenting Jesus Christ as the great prophet, the son of God, divine in all of his attributes and power. But the leader of his people who will challenge us to live differently. He sandwiches the Sermon on the Mount between stories of Jesus healing and spending time with the excluded and the vulnerable and the weak. Of course, the challenge isn't in reading the Sermon on the Mount. We could all do that. It'll take about 10 minutes. The challenge is in living it. Allowing it to shape us, to mold us, to form us, and to grow the kingdom of God in us. So the next nine weeks are going to be fun. That was supposed to be a joke, but never mind. (laughs) We will be confronted. We will be made to feel uncomfortable. But not so that we can feel useless. So that we can see the grace and the possibility of Almighty God. So what I'd like to do is kind of give you a whistle-stop tour of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And then we're going to pause week by week and read it slowly and reflect on it and think about it. So let's read part of it together now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, 
How can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one can, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Go to verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. On into chapter 6. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Go to verse 33. But strive first for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone amongst you, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Verse 28. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. 
There are several things that I want to say to you about this passage this morning. And I want to do it in a way that whets your appetite for how we're going to go across the rest of the Sermon on the Mount over the next few weeks. Here's the first thing, and it's a theological point, but it's actually a really important thing. A moment or two ago, I said to you that Matthew sets out his gospel in a particular way. There are four gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Matthew has a determined uh, desire to set a, 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 a picture of Jesus that is rooted in Jewish understanding. And therefore, he presents Jesus as the new Moses. Now, those of you that have been following our Bible studies on Wednesday nights will know that in the first week or the second week, I explained that Moses is seen as the author of the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is the first five books in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's seen as one of the great prophets of Israel. He's seen as the lawgiver. When Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was Moses and Elijah that he was seen talking to. Matthew does something really interesting. He presents Jesus as a new Moses. And he does it through a number of means. Let me highlight just two to you. Just as there were five books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Matthew presents Jesus' teaching through five great sets of sermons. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. They all involve mountains and hillsides and teaching. If you read the book closely, you'll discover that. The first is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where there's this picture of Jesus. Listen to verses 1, 2, and 3 of Matthew chapter 5 again. Jesus went up a mountainside. And those who were following him, his disciples went with him. And he sat down and he began to teach them, saying, it's a picture just like Moses, who went up a mountainside to receive the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. The next set of teaching, the second book, if you like, is Jesus' commissioning of his disciples and his instructions around what they are to do in Matthew 10, 11, and 12. Once again, it's this set of teaching clumped together by Matthew, book number two. Book number three is Matthew's teaching around the kingdom in Matthew 13, 14, 15, and 16. Book number four is Matthew's teaching around what it looks like to be people who are aware of Christ's lordship over our lives in Matthew 18, 19, and 20. And book number five is when Jesus teaches them again about the end things in Matthew 23, 24, and 25. Matthew wants us to understand something. And Jews reading this at first would have understood it. It feels a little bit boring to us, but it's not boring at all. He wants them to understand that here is a man who is not just claiming to be a good teacher. He's claiming to be the new Moses. He's not just another moral example. He's not just someone else with a good agenda. This man is above everybody that's ever gone before. And his words carry more weight than anyone that has ever spoken or will ever speak. I told you there were two ways that Matthew set that out. The first is by presenting him as a new Moses along the lines that I just said. The second is this. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 uh, again and read what he says from verse um, 17 to 20. I read it to you a moment ago. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at me for a moment. This is so important. If you're a Christian, then you will be familiar with the arguments that are being set out all around us that the Bible has two halves and the first half doesn't matter to us. That the Old Testament God is a different person, a different character to the God of the New Testament. It's not true. We can't understand the God of the New Testament without exploring the God of the Old Testament. We can't understand who he is. We can't understand what Jesus did. We can't understand his ministry or his purpose or his teaching without rooting him in his Jewishness. Without remembering that he is a faithful Jew as well as the Son of God. Jesus looks at his disciples here and he says, I haven't come to do away with the law. I haven't come to say none of that matters anymore. I've come to fulfill it. A little phrase that is used, not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away, is a Jewish, a Hebrew idiom. And it refers to two tiny dots. One is a stroke and one is a dot in the Hebrew language. The English equivalent is, every T will be crossed and every I will be dotted. I haven't come to do away with it. I've come to show you what it really means. I've come to live this out for you. Now here's the interesting thing that we will pick up in the next few weeks. I want you to follow with me for one second in Matthew chapter 5, sections that we did not read. But I'm going to read just a little bit of it to you. Verse 21. Have you got it? You can answer me. I don't bite. Have you got it? Good. Don't just look at me. Look at your Bible. It's much more attractive than me anyway. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, now verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, they are really important verses. Here's why. I'll talk about the content of what he says next week. It's the, it's the, it's the context that I want to paint for you for a moment. If you were a good rabbi, and Jesus was a good rabbi, here is how you taught. You have heard it said. That's the phrase you used. And you would quote Moses, which is what Jesus does six times, directly. And then you would say, and Rabbi Philip just to make Pip feel at home, has said to you. And Rabbi James has said to you. And Rabbi Thomas has said to you. And Rabbi Roy, I'm sure that isn't a Hebrew name, but it doesn't matter, has said to you. 
and you would quote them, then you would say, and I say to you. Because what you're doing in that moment is saying, here am I, a faithful rabbi, quoting all the rabbis, or some of them, between me and Moses, and proving my credentials by being able to recite Moses and those who have interpreted him. And now I am giving you another interpretation that builds on their interpretation. And those listening would say, here is a faithful rabbi. Here is a good teacher in orthodox and in line, in orthodoxy and in line with the teachings of the Jewish people. I can listen to him. Jesus did not do that. Did you notice what he did? It might sound boring to you. It is not boring. He said, you have heard it said, and he quotes Moses. He jumps over every other generation of rabbis. And then he says, not and I say to you. What's the word he uses? But. I could preach you a sermon on but. It is explosive in its intentionality. Jesus is standing before these devout Jews and he's saying, here is Moses, but I'm bigger. I'm clearer. I'm stronger. I am the true Moses. I'm the one that he pointed to. I'm pointing back to him so that you can see that he points forward to me. And he looks at these people. And when you read it all in context, you'll discover it over the next few weeks. Honestly, if you think theology is boring, somebody's taught you wrongly. All these rabbis that had come before had stood before their teachers and had stood before their pupils for years and taught them the Torah, taught them the law, taught them the way of life that Jesus is talking about here. And they'd quoted it and they'd recited it and they pointed to examples of it. Do you know what Jesus Christ does in the Sermon on the Mount? It is incredible. He stands in front of these Jewish people and he says, you've heard all about the Torah through Moses. I am the Torah. I am the living, breathing way of God. Every law is fulfilled in me. Every promise is fulfilled with me. Every obligation is fulfilled in me. Every expectation is fulfilled in me. Every bit of holiness that is required is fulfilled in me. All of the commandments, all of the expectations, all of the instructions, all of it is fulfilled in me because I am it. If that doesn't excite you, I don't know what can. He sets himself up and he presents himself as the living breathing way which is why he then goes on in Matthew chapter 5 to say unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees you can't even enter the kingdom of God see there are two different ways of reading the sermon on the mount some will read it as a an injunction an instruction to try harder I think you're on a hiding to nothing I think you will end up being utterly demoralized and completely discouraged. And there are a couple of clues to help us understand why that is true. Who is this for? Who is this sermon for? Go back to the beginning of chapter 5 again. Read it carefully. And you will discover exactly who it's for. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak. And he taught them. This is not a sermon for the world on how to live. This is instruction for you as a follower of Jesus on how to live. Some of you will not like what I'm about to say. We Christians are far too good at shouting at the world and moralizing and ignoring the call to live holy lives ourselves. There's something wrong with Christianity when the only thing that we are known for is what we stand against. Don't you think? Christians, they're the ones that don't like them and don't like them and don't like them. They're the ones that don't like people that have had abortions. They don't like people that have committed euthanasia. They don't like gay people. And they don't like transgender people. And they don't like people that don't look the same. And the Protestants don't like the Catholics. And the Catholics don't like the Protestants. Those Christians are the people that have every answer and hate everybody else. How did we end up there? How did the church of Jesus Christ, a life-giving community that is supposed to imbibe such hope and joy and peace and forgiveness and grace and mercy end up sounding so narrow-minded? I told you this would be uncomfortable. Instead, we are people who believe in something. We believe in Jesus. We believe in his teaching. We believe in his example. What I said to you at the beginning of this sermon is really important. Gandhi said to this young fella, I can't follow you because I don't see you living what you say you live. You say you believe something, but you're not living it. Maybe the world will take notice of us if we live this out. If we took these principles and allowed them to shape our hearts and our lives, maybe our communities would be more deeply challenged. It's a remarkable thing. It's a powerful thing that Jesus does this. He's addressing his followers. But do you notice something? I'm sure you did. As you read through this sermon this week and the rest of the week, you'll see that the audience seems to get bigger. Let me show you what I mean, because I read it to you a moment or two ago. Go to the very end of the sermon now. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through to 29. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Do you see what's happened? At the beginning of the sermon, we're told his disciples came to him and he sat down and he started to teach them. At the end of the sermon, we're told that the crowds took notice of what he was saying. What's happening here? Here's what's happening. A group of 20, 30, 40, a dozen, who knows how many disciples are sitting listening to Jesus. They're hanging on his every word. And other people are noticing. And they're saying, what, what, what's going on? They're listening intently. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I wonder, was it like Chinese whispers all the way back to the end of the crowd? He said this. He said that, he said that holiness wasn't just about going to the temple. He couldn't have said that. He said that he's, he's a new Moses. He couldn't have said that. He said stuff about adultery and anger that I've never heard a scribe say. 
He couldn't have said that. He had to go to all those self-righteous people that stand outside the temple and flaunt their wealth and pray in the street corners. You know that Jeremiah that's always there every week with his hands raised looking as if he's God's gift to the church or God's gift to the temple? He had to go at him. He couldn't have said that. And the influence grows and grows and grows until by the end of the sermon, everyone is listening. Do you want to know how to catch the attention of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Live like Jesus. Preach like Jesus. Sound like Jesus. Walk like Jesus. Talk like Jesus. And they will take notice that we have been with Christ. But here's another thing. I could stay here for months. I've been writing a book in the Sermon on the Mount for five years. And I've never preached it in this way to my congregation. So you're just going to get a belly full of it for two months. Here's what happens at the end of Matthew chapter 7. See that little verse at the end? Look at it again. They took note that he taught with authority. Not like the scribes and Pharisees. How far does that authority go? Matthew answers in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, you read of Jesus cleansing a leper in the first four verses, him cleansing a centurion's servant from verse 5 to 13, healing many at Peter's house from 14 to 17, stilling a storm from verse 23 to 27, and delivering a demonic from verse 28 to the end of the chapter. In verse, chapter 9, he heals a paralytic, and then in chapter 9, he goes on to call Matthew. In other words, oh, and in chapter 9, he also restores a woman to life. In other words, here is what Matthew does. He says, these people were astounded at his authority. They were astounded that he taught with such clarity. How far does that authority go? He heals a leper within Israel. Somebody within the Jewish community. His authority covers the Jewish community. Then he heals a centurion servant. His authority covers the Gentile community, a Roman citizen. Then he heals many in Peter's house. His authority covers more than one person. Then he stills a storm. His authority covers nature. And then he delivers somebody of a demon. His authority covers even the powers of darkness. In other words, this man's authority covers everything and everyone. And there's no one that he can't reach. There's no one that he can't touch. There's no one that is beyond his peel. And if we allow this teaching to penetrate our hearts, we carry in our lives an authority which is incredible. Matthew chapter 5 is fundamentally about Jesus challenging us about our inner life. The attitudes of our heart. In the first 11 verses that we will unpack next week, you hear this most remarkable phrase. It should upset you. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. And the word blessed in Greek means happy. Doesn't just mean content, it means happy. If I was giving you an accurate English translation, it would mean stand up in your chair and celebrate and shout, yippee! Is that what you do when you're mourning? When you lose someone or something that you loved, you get up on a chair and say, yay! Of course you don't. 
When your world is falling apart, maybe you're here this morning or watching online and it's falling apart, do you go, yes, it's falling apart. Yet Jesus teaches a topsy-turvy kingdom. He teaches that even when life throws its worst at you, there's something else going on underneath that you can find hope in. There are men and women sitting in this room this morning or watching online, and your lives are collapsing around you. And conventional wisdom means that you give up. You throw in the towel, you go home, and you take a handful of tablets and swallow them, or you walk out. Conventional wisdom will not get you through this storm. But God's wisdom will. God's grace and mercy, the person of Jesus Christ, turns things around, changes lives, gives hope in the midst of the the darkest despair. The rest of the chapter is fundamentally about our inner attitudes and how we manage them. But there's a little verse at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, that I want you to think about for just a few seconds with me. I'm going to take you one verse out of each chapter and help you to understand something, and then we're going to finish the message. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your Father is perfect. The Greek word is be perfectly fitted like a dove joint and a bit of wood. What does it mean to be perfect? It doesn't mean to have all the answers. It doesn't mean to get everything right. What he's saying is be at the right place in your life for where you are now. Allowing God to do what he wants through you. Be utterly reliant and dependent on him, shaped by his grace and by his mercy. Let your inner life and your outer life be joined together like a dovetail joint. Don't let your outer life look like one thing and your inner life look like another. Don't tell everybody that you're walking right with God when inside you're falling apart. Be honest enough to let your inner and your outer life fit together like a, like a joiner's joint. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's the same on the inside as he is on the outside. There's no dichotomy. There's no separation of his inner life and his outer life. How's your inner life? And how does it compare to your outer life? Then in chapter 6, Jesus teaches them about their spiritual life and its connection to how they handle material possessions. I can't wait to get to chapter 6. It's the most remarkable story, and it's the most remarkable teaching about worry. Who's a worrier? I could worry for Northern Ireland. If there was an Olympic medal for worrying, I'd be in the top three. And what's the worst thing that a person that worries can be told? That's what Jesus says. Don't worry. If you say to me, don't worry, do you know what I immediately do? Worry about worrying. (laughs) If you say to me, don't worry, I'm like, oh, no, I'm worrying. Or as we Christians like to say, I'm not worried. I'm just concerned. (laughs) There's a key answer to our inner life. Jesus links them together. I don't want to preach the whole sermon because you'll be here for three weeks. But he links together almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. The three pillars of Jewish spiritual life, Muslims have five, we'll come to them in a few weeks, but Jews have three, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. He talks specifically about those in the first half of chapter six. And in the second half of chapter six, 
He talks about how that impacts worry. How you look at things and how your inner life works impact worry. It impacts the way we live. What's the key verse from Matthew chapter 6? If Matthew's key verse in chapter 5 is verse 48, Matthew's key verse in chapter 6 is verse 33. Seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Put God at the center of your lives and everything else will sort itself out eventually. Then in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about our relationships with other things and other people. And he talks about judgment. It's one of the most badly taught passages of Scripture in the world. The number of times I've heard a Christian say, oh, it's not, no, it's not for me to judge. <laughs> Can't judge. Matthew 5 says, don't judge. Read the whole passage. Stop taking it out of context. Do not judge lest you be judged because with the judgment, I learned it in the authorized version, because with the judgment that you are judged, therewith you will be judged. And then he says, because you don't cast your pearls before swine or your meat before dogs, how do you know they're swine? How do you know they're dogs unless you make a judgment? It's a very funny sermon, by the way. Not mine, Jesus's. He talks about planks in one eye and sawdust in the other. How do you know somebody has sawdust in their eye or a plank in their eye? Unless you make a judgment. He doesn't say don't judge. He says something much more challenging. Here's what he says. Paul, come and be the person I'm judging for a moment. Pip, come and be God. <laughs> These ex-Presbyterians have to be God at some point. <laughs> here, is, here is the analogy. Here is the picture that Jesus paints. All of you will make judgments. I'm the person in the middle. If I make a judgment of Paul... Do you remember the sketch from that was the week that was? That's what this feels like. Those of you that are old enough to remember it. Nobody remembers it. doesn't matter. I'm glad I'm not like him. I'm glad I'm not as unholy as him. I'm glad I'm not as unrighteous as him. I'm glad I don't have the same outlook as him. I'm glad I dress better than him. I'm glad I have a tie. Look forward to him having one. <laughs> That's making judgments, right? Here's what Jesus teaches. Get this, and it is so important. Every time I make a judgment of you, I'm saying to God, please judge me by the same criteria. Thank you. Thank you, God. <laughs> Thank you, sinner. Every time you say, I don't want them in my church, you're saying to God, I don't want to be in your church. Every time you say, look at how evil they are, you're saying to God, please judge me with the same criteria. Every time you say, I'm better than them, you're saying to God, I'm better than you. Every time you make a judgment, you give God permission to judge you by the same criteria. That should cause us to stop. To stop making judgments that are ungracious and unkind and unholy. How often do we make our lives and our families perfect and everybody else's family not perfect? How often have you left a service and run down everything that's happened in it? God help you. Stood 
in car parks and talked behind people's backs, moaned and groaned and complained, pointed the finger at pastors and leaders and deacons. God help you. Every time you do it, you're saying to God, judge me with the same criteria. I would not want to be you on judgment day. I would not want to stand in your shoes and look at Almighty God and say, I judged everybody else because I was perfect. Now you judge me with the same criteria. Have you any idea of the significance of that? This fluffy, funny Sermon on the Mount has teeth. It causes us to repent, to kneel before Almighty God and say, have mercy on my soul and give me something that I can live by that is stronger than me. The key verse of Matthew chapter 7 is verse 12. In everything you do, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. If you read this sermon properly and with this you'll be grateful to know that I'm finishing. You hear a list of things that you can't do. You hear beatitudes that make you realize how far you've got to go in your spiritual life. I'll look at them next week. You hear a list of six examples from the Old Testament of how to live and you realize that grace doesn't lower the bar, grace raises the bar. About lust, about anger, about words, about responses, about attitudes, about heart. And you think, I can't do this. Then you read chapter 6, and you're told how to pray, and you're told how to fast, and you're told how to give, and you think, I can't do this either. And then you read the next section, and you're told not to worry, and you're beginning to scratch your head and think, this is impossible. Then you get to chapter 7, and you're told not to make judgments that are unfair, and you think, how can I do this? And at that point, Jesus introduces something which is life-giving. You get to chapter 7, verse 6 or 7, and you should, if you've read it properly, be at the point where you're saying, I can't do this. And it's exactly at that point that Jesus Christ says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. In the equivalent passage in Luke, Jesus adds these words, because anyone who asks the Father will receive the Holy Spirit. The Sermon on the Mount is a lesson in dependence on God's grace. It's not about you trying harder. It's about you digging deeper. It's not about you fulfilling rules and regulations. It's about you relying on God's grace more deeply and letting his spirit live through you. There is hope in this passage. Hope for those of us that fail. Hope for those of us that find it too hard to live the Christian life on our own strength. Hope for those of us that struggle to pray. Hope for those of us that struggle to worship, that struggle to give, that struggle to fast. Hope for those of us that make unfair judgments. Hope for those of us that are falling apart. Because when we say we can't do this, God in his grace and his mercy comes and meets us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that good news? And all of that was made possible. By one man on a cross who took our sin and our shame and our brokenness and our judgments and our sorrow and our wayward lives 
and exchange them for forgiveness and hope. If you're joining online or you're in this room, there is no one beyond the reach of God's mercy. Maybe you need to start again. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus. And this morning you need to say, Lord, I'm coming back to the table and I'm going to take bread and wine like I've never taken it before. I'm clinging to your mercy. I'm throwing myself on your grace because without you, I can't live the Christian life. But I don't need to live it without you. Come to this table not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because you love the Lord a lot, but because you love him a little and you want to love him more. Come in your frailty and be met by the grace, the mercy, and the power of Almighty God. Come humble enough to say, I need you and I'm sorry. And open enough to receive grace and mercy from the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and he gave thanks for it. And he told his disciples that it represented his body that was broken for them. After they'd eaten, he took the cup and he drank it and he said, this is the covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he said, drink from it, all of you. In the Bible, we are told, and I want you to take this seriously this morning, please. It's really important to me because I'm answerable to God for this. That we are to examine ourselves. That we do not eat this bread and drink this cup in an unworthy fashion. Because if we do, we eat and drink damnation to ourselves. I need to say to you this morning, if you're not right with your brother or your sister, I am discharging my biblical responsibility. And I'm saying to you, get right. If you choose not to get right, then please don't eat the bread and don't drink the wine. If you've hurt your brothers and sisters, then put it right. Get up and walk across to somebody and ask them for their forgiveness. It's not a religious service. We pride ourselves in saying that. If you need to get right with someone, then please get right with them. If you need to slip outside and make a phone call, then do it before you take bread and wine. But don't take this bread and don't take this wine if your heart isn't right with Jesus Christ and with one another. If you're not a Christian, then begin the journey now. Ask him to have mercy in your soul and then eat the bread and drink the wine. I have discharged my biblical responsibility in admonishing you to think about this seriously. The choice about communion now lies with you. As you eat and drink, may you receive grace and mercy from Jesus for your life, for your relationship with God and for your journey. And if you need to put things right, Put them right now. Lord, come by the power of your spirit and minister across this room. In Jesus' name, amen.